Good morning. Good morning. All right, let's go ahead and begin the class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you today and we ask for your presence and your spirit will join us. Fill our hearts with your, your love and presence. Give us insight and wisdom. We do want to thank you for our mothers who have uh, given so much to, uh, to raise us in the knowledge of the Lord. And we pray that you will bless them. And, and uh, we pray that uh, all of our activities will be to your honor. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number eight in our quarterly major lessons for minor prophets. And the title this week is Trusting God's Goodness, Habakkuk. And the, the memory text is from Habakkuk 2.14, and it says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Any thoughts about the memory text? The latter rain. The latter rain, he says. Do you know, is, is it saying that the, the, that the earth is going to be covered with the glory of the Lord? No, the knowledge of the, so what's it imply? The knowledge of the glory of the Lord. So where is, is this activity taking place? On the minds of people on earth. Okay, so notice that first. So there's something that's going to happen that is going to enlighten the minds of people with awareness or knowledge of the Lord's glory. So the next question then is, what is the Lord's glory? Ah, uh, okay. You guys are so smart. See, I, I put down here uh, options for you. Be already picked. It's like I got a five. It's got A, B, C, D. You know, and you already you already picked it. Um, fire, power, energy, authority, character. Yes, character. But how would you build a case? Build the case because we don't want to just make claims and everyone to show evidence. How, how do you build the case that God's glory is His character instead of the bright, shiny, brilliant light? Moses. Okay, he says Moses, so you're referring to Exodus 33, 18, 19. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. So, glory of the Lord, name of the Lord, character, my goodness. Okay, any other, any other case you can make for this? Jesus of Nazareth, yes. yes. Forgiving thousands. Pardon? Forgiving thousands. Okay, yes, yes, but connecting, those are true, but the glory connected to the character. Or is it consuming fire? Christ in me, the hope of glory. Oh, okay, that's a good one. I like that one. Other thoughts? First angel's message. First, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. So give him glory, meaning we're going to give bright, shining light, or we're going to actually look like him in the way we live. We're going to live his character. I like that one too. How about this one? This is out of Haggai 2, verses 3 and 9, and it says, Who of you, this is after the, after the 70 year captivity, after they're set free, they come back, they're laying the foundations for the new temple, this is what they say. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How did it look? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? And they all wailed and they mourned because the glory of the second temple was not as Glorious is the first temple. The gl- but then the prophet goes on to say in Haggai verse 9, the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. So second temple is so puny and tiny compared to the first temple that all the people who saw the first temple were mourning and groaning because it's this little bitty thing. It's like we had this mansion on a hill and then we got a double wide trailer. But the Lord says the second temple is going to be more glorious than the first. How? Why? Okay. Yes. John 12, just before Jesus went to his death, he says, For this reason I came to the world, Father, glorify thy name. Okay. 
So how does that connect with the second temple being more glorious than the first temple? He died, actually should have died in the uh, courtyard of the temple to glorify his father's character. Okay, so, so any, anybody else want to comment on that? Yes. When he made that comment, there was, a, there was an audible thing. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Absolutely. And so he did it by, uh, through Christ's life. Okay, so are we saying that the te- second temple was more glorious than the first temple because the second temple had Jesus' presence there revealing God's character acted out where the first temple didn't? But wait. Amen. Wait, wait, wait. What happened on the dedication of Solomon's first temple? God's presence filled Wait a minute. God's presence came and filled it with this bright, shining light, so brilliant the priest couldn't enter it. Right. So now we have both temples, God's presence... In both. One, it's the fiery, bright brilliance. The other one, it's Jesus, humble, meek, and mild in his human form, selfless and giving, surrendering his, his greater love is no man to give his life. No one can take my life, I give it freely. We have G- God physically being in both. One's big and Solomon's temple, huge, magnificent. One's smaller, but yet the Lord still says that the second temple is more glorious. So what can we conclude from this? Well, the first one, people couldn't stand in his presence. It was so glorious. The second one, he was among them. They could mingle with him. They could see the results of his character in action. So it was glorious at the first one. But according to the scripture, which was even more glorious? The second one. The second one, yes. God's humility, his, his love, his forgiveness, his, his willingness to become a servant, his willingness to have his created beings curse, curse him and spit on him and kill him and not use his power to uh, stop him. So are we making a case fairly confidently now that God's glory is his character of love. Are we making that case? Then go back to our memory verse for today. And the memory verse today says that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth. The knowledge of, now how would we rephrase that? The knowledge of the character, God's character of love will cover the earth. Isn't that what it's saying? Do you understand how many people miss this? They're saying it's the knowledge of power and the fire coming down from heaven to punish sinners. His glory is going to crush them. No, it's the knowledge of his humble character of selfless love is going to cover the earth. This is a quote out of a book called Christ Object Lessons, page 415. Think of it in the context of the evidence we just laid out, written more than 100 years ago. It is the darkness of the misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. Men are losing their knowledge of his character. It has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. At this time, a message from God is to be proclaimed, a message illuminating in its influence and saving in its power. His character is to be made known. Into the darkness of the world is to be shed the light of his glory, the light of his goodness, mercy, and truth, the last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is the revelation of his character of love. Right. Notice, isn't that, what, isn't that what our memory verse today is about? The knowledge of the glory of God is to cover the earth. Okay, well, what's stopping that from happening? Why is this not happening? What's obstructing it? It's our teachings that it's not the character of God that's his glory. I mean, why haven't we taught this before? Yes, why haven't we taught this before? We're going to actually explore that very question in just a moment. That's a great question, yes. The more the character of God is revealed, the more Satan is exposed. That's well said. That's true, absolutely, absolutely. 
So this is the passion, this message, this final message to reveal the glory, to reveal God's character, to make it known, is the passion of this ministry, Come and Reason Ministries. That's what we're trying to do, to help people know that. Yes, Lisa. Um, the churches reveal the character that Satan says he has instead of God's character. That Many times that's the case, isn't it? That's exactly right. Um, over the last uh, several years, you probably have noticed there's a, uh, uh, there's a hurting to be a groundswell of this message coming. Have you noticed it? Yes. Not just in our class, but... but Pardon? From all denominations, voices are now rising up. This is, this is the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is starting to make known. Let's look at Sunday's lesson. It asks us to read Habakkuk 1, 2 through 4. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you intolerate wrong? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. The prophet was asking how long they must endure. What about today? Do we ever wonder how long? Well, what's the answer? How long? I thought about this question. As long as it takes. Isn't that right? As long as it takes, as long as there's hope for others who haven't heard this message. So in reality, she says, we're the one holding it back. Um, This is what Peter says, that we can hasten the day of the Lord. But we're not hastening it because what's happened instead is we've bought into a distorted construct and we've taken a distorted view of God to the world. Jesus said, when the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world as a witness to all nations, the end will come. What kingdom? The kingdom of love or the kingdom of Rome? And, and you know the difference between the two kingdoms at its root? It's the difference in God's design protocols of love, how things were built to operate versus imposed rules that you must enforce with imposed penalties. That was the, those are the root differences. So the, the, the question that Habakkuk asks also is, how long, how long will we endure injustice of sin? Why were there injustices incurring, occurring in Habakkuk's day? Why? They were worshiping false gods. When you worship, pardon? Same reason they're occurring today. Same reason they're occurring today. Uh, to whom is Habakkuk referring when he, when he refers to all this injustice? Was he referring to the injustice of the pagan nations around him or the actual Jews of, of his own culture, of his own country? His own country. So um, he's longing for God to bring reform. He's begging God, bring reform, bring reform. Why doesn't God simply send lightning bolts to bring reform, to fix it? It won't really fix it. It, it won't, won't fix their hearts. There you go. What do lightning bolts do? They scare you. Yeah, it makes fear. Wait, wait. So, so as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. afraid. Lightning bolts increase fear. fear, but perfect love casts out all fear. See, he wants fear out of our hearts. You can't get that by threats. Many times on issues like justice, judgment, atonement, satisfaction, we have conflict with, with, with many of, the, of those in, in, in the church around us uh, not appreciating what we're saying and even opposing it. And as you know, in this class, we've for some months explored the truth by contrasting the two ways God's law can be understood or conceived, natural law or imposed law. 
And it struck me that this contrast to the two laws can also clarify much of the terminology used in Scripture and expose why there's so much disagreement and misunderstanding between us and some other people. So in, and there's a table in the notes today. And I'm going to go through this with you, and I hope you, when Dean puts the notes up uh, tomorrow or Monday on the, on the website, you'll download this, because this table will be very helpful when you're dealing with people that hold a different view. And on the left side, we have natural law, law of love, God's character as he built and constructed his universe, that he built it to operate in harmony with his own nature. Uh, and on the other side, we have imposed law, like a Roman emperor who puts rules upon his, his subjects to, to control and, uh, their, their behavior. And some of the, the first, first couple of these you've heard before, I just want to kind of contrast the two, and then we're going to go through some of these terminologies. But the natural law of love is the protocol upon which life is built. Imposed law are rules set by somebody in authority. It's arbitrary. Like the speed limit, like the tax law. Okay. Um, violations of the natural law are incompatible with life. Example, breathing is a law of respiration. You've got to breathe. If you break it, you can't, you can't live. It's incompatible with life. Violations of, of the imposed law are not incompatible with life and instead require external punishment. Some authority must inflict punishment. Violations of the natural law, we find God's activity is working to heal and restore to harmony. That's what he's doing. His energy is directed to restore and heal. In the imposed law, God is, God's activity is, is focused on in inflicting just punishments. He must punish those who disobey. In the natural law, the problem is sin, deviation from God's design in the character and heart of mankind. In the imposed law, the problem is anger and wrath on God who's been offended by our breaking his rules. In the natural law, Christ died to remedy mankind and destroy sin. In the imposed law, Christ died to appease God and pay a legal penalty. And so let's look at some of the words and terminology now. Justification under the natural law means setting man right in heart with God. When you justify the margins on your word document, you take what's out of harmony and set it in harmony. You align it. God's justification is when he justifies or sets the heart of man right with him again. We're back in harmony, in line with him, in his design. Justification under the imposed law model, though, they think it means declaring man legally right with God, even though he's still out of harmony with God. That's what, and, and you'll find this in the lesson here when we go through a little bit. Judgment by God, in other words, God's judgment, not our judgment of God, but God, judgment by God, under the natural law view, is God's accurate diagnosis of our condition and therapeutic interventions to remedy our condition, discipline, so forth. He makes a judgment, this is the best. And also the pronouncements of the natural results of the deviations from his design. These are his judgments. But judgment under the imposed law view is legal finding and imposed punishment. He finds you guilty and he imposes the just punishment. That's his judgment. This is what you deserve. Forgiveness under the natural law view is the experience of God freely for extending forgiveness or forgiving and sinner repenting resulting in reconciliation and transformation. That's forgiveness under the natural law view. Forgiveness under the imposed law view is legal pardon because of legal payment. You're, you, have a, you have an account, you have a, a punishment due you, payment's been applied to your account, you get a legal pardon. That's forgiveness in that Jesus view. Made the and Jesus made the payment. Salvation, under the natural law view, is the experience of trusting God and accepting Jesus Christ into the heart, which results in healing and restoration of godliness, or healing the person back to God's original design and character. We love God and others more than self. That's salvation, recreation, healing. Salvation under the 
the imposed law view is actually legally accepting the blood payment and having pardon entered into the heavenly record books beside your name. Atonement under the natural law view means at one mint, being reconciled in heart to be unified with God again. You're, you're at one with him in heart, mind, character, purpose, method, motive. Our thoughts are brought into harmony with his thoughts. Our will is brought into unity with his will. Our desire is united with his desire. We live his life. This is atonement. We're back at one. Atonement under the imposed law view means appeasement paying the legal penalty. Satisfaction. You know, satisfaction doctrine. Satisfaction under the natural law model is God being satisfied with Christ's perfect completion of his mission to reveal the truth about him and provide remedy which restores humanity back to God's design. He's satisfied. It works. He's fixed the problem. Satisfaction under the uh, imposed law view is God receiving legal penalty of his son's blood to satisfy his demand for retribution. You see the huge differences here as we're going through this. Huge, huge differences. Justice. Justice under the natural law, and, and we've gone through this, and I didn't give all the text here. Go back to, the, to this quarter's notes, and you'll see whole reams of text where we've done this. But justice under the natural law view is delivering the oppressed. What's the just thing to do for the person who's been murdered? Resurrect them. For the person whose arm has been broken, heal it. Justice is restoring and healing the damage that sin has done, delivering the oppressed. Justice under the imposed view is punishing the oppressor. Delivering the oppressed, punishing the oppressor. Vengeance. Vengeance is, under the natural law view, is healing the damage caused by sin, destroying sin and its results. Like a doctor destroys disease. He takes vengeance on disease, not the disease-ridden person. Whereas vengeance in the imposed law view is punishing sinners for their crimes. Wrath under the natural law view, letting go to reap the natural results of one's choice. Wrath under the imposed law view is infliction of external pain, suffering, and punishment. We're going to get more into these things as we go through our lesson today. Two more. Anger. God's rage at, under the natural law view, God's rage at sin and outrage at the damage caused to the object of his love. Like a doctor angry at disease, but never the sick patient. And the, the letting go of the non-compliant patient to reap what he chooses. Anger under the imposed law is God's outrage at how he has been treated. His in, he's incensed and host, and his, his incensed and hostile response to the violations of his law and disrespect toward him and the infliction of punishment for disobedient behavior. And then last, heavenly records. Under the natural law view, the exact transcript of each individual character, like medical records documenting the true condition of each person and the history of the remedy offered and either applied or rejected and thus their, their condition and why. Versus heavenly records in the imposed law view, a legal tally of every sin committed, an accurate notation of each crime confessed, and, nota- and notated pardon by each act as the blood of Jesus is applied to the heavenly transcript or the heavenly record. Thoughts about this contrast? Is this helpful? Very. You'll understand now why when you have conversations with people, they're on a completely different page than you are. Using the same words. Using the same words, but getting hostile and angry because you aren't agreeing with their interpretation. They're on a, they are on a completely different page because they've accepted the lie. And where did this lie come? Pardon? 
In your notes, do you have scriptures and stuff all on these? I, in these notes, I didn't actually put all the references. I just put the contrast. But every one of these I can provide references for. And many of the references we have in our, on our website, under our blogs, and other places. Um, but uh, maybe it'd be fun for you to actually take time and find all the references yourself for these, huh? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh-huh. It'd be helpful for you to and reinforce that in your own mind, wouldn't it? It's a complete different language. It is a complete different language. And where did this change? I'm going to tell you it changed after Constantine converted. When Constantine converted, the the church accepted this construct that God's government runs like Constantine runs his empire. And God, and, and I, and I, I brought the quotes in here before, and if you want them again, I can provide them, but they're quotes from the, uh, from Asubius, the first church historian back in the, in the fourth century that, uh, that saw that, uh, that God's government in heaven was a, was a, a reflection or, or, or Constantine's government on earth was a reflection of God's government in heaven. And God ran his universe in heaven like Constantine ran his, his government on earth. And that's this idea of an imposed law infected Christianity. You look at the history of the Catholic Church and, and how the Catholic Church after that time, the Church of Rome took off and how they practice and the methods they practice. They use state power to impose punishments upon those who disagree, authority over punishing down this entire imposed law contract, thinking it's legal and just to do so because they've rejected God's law that the scripture describes as a law of love. Prior to Constantine, if you, if you read the history, and, and by the way, if, you, if you've gotten my new book, all this is in the new book too. Not the table, but th- this history that I'm giving you is in the new book. Uh, prior to Constantine, um, the church taught that God's law is the law of love the protocol upon which life is built to operate. Love is fulfillment of the law. If you keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbors yourself, you're, you're, you're keeping the law. I mean, this is what the Scripture taught. And this is the, the apostolic church, and I've got Justin Martyr and Irenaeus teaching that what Christ's mission to earth was was not to pay any legal penalties. That's not why he came. The early church taught he came to heal mankind and restore us back to God's design because they understood God's, the, the, the law was the protocols upon which life was built. And since, since this infection of this assorted law, even since the Protestant Reformation, and remember there's a, a prophecy in Daniel 7 that this, this, this little horn powered seek to change God's law. And how did they do it? By getting Christians to believe God's laws like a Roman emperor imposed upon his creatures, regardless of what ten you, you ascribe to. This is the real change and, and what's happened is, as any good trickster or huckster or con man will do, they use a methodology known as diversion. They get you looking over here and think you've identified what the con is while they're really hitting you from over here. And what's the diversion of the change of the law? Well, let's take, let's take the commandments and let's delete one, split one into two, and change one, of the, one on which day you worship overtly, proudly put it out there, claim this is what we're doing. Everyone will focus on that, argue over it, and never see the fact that regardless of which side you argue on which day, you're still accepting God-imposed law and therefore imposes punishment, and you've bought the lie on how God's law was changed. It's a grand scheme. He's the master deceiver. Mm-hmm. And we need to reject it and come back to God's design and his protocols for how he built life to operate. Third paragraph being a prophet, Habakkuk knew, knows well how much God loves justice and hates oppression. So he wants to know why God allows injustice to continue. All around, he notices violence and law-breaking, and it seems that the wicked triumph over the righteous. Justice is being perverted by the powerful as it was, as it was in the time of Amos and is so often today. What is God, uh, why does God allow injustice to continue? 
Why does he allow it? Freedom. Freedom. So what could God do? What are his options? What does God want from us? Obedience. Obedience, I heard. But freely given. Freely given obedience. And obedience, what does it mean? Come into agreement. I like this. This is very nicely said. Is it just simply following the rules? Or is it, is it simply behavioral conformity? Or is it lo- love, loyalty, devotion, understanding, commitment, and agreement? This is what he wants from us. Can one get love, devotion, loyalty, understanding, commitment, and agreement by the use of force and threats? No. No. So God's all-powerful, but do you see how his power, his ability to inflict energy, to, to, to thunder and shake the earth, doesn't actually get us moving the direction he wants us to go. It gets us afraid. So what must he do? He leaves us free to allow the two antagonistic principles to be exposed. And and when people freely choose because the evidence God has provided to trust the Lord, then the Holy Spirit's poured out and transformation of the inner man happens as we love him and love others more than self. Last paragraph. It says, Babylon's ruthless arrogance acknowledges no accountability, seeks no repentance, offers no reparations. It violates the most fundamental order of created life. God had said that Babylon's army will be used as a rod of my, of my God's anger. The punishment will take place during Habakkuk's lifetime. The whole situation raises even more difficult questions about divine justice. What do you think it means that Babylon was a rod of God's anger? So first question, what is God's anger? Does it, does, does it, does it, does some, do some people fall into the trap of thinking that uh, Babylon is used by God to inflict punishment upon Israel? Is that how it's often seen or understood? Yes. But all he does is remove his protection from Israel. So, so we need to ask the question. Yes, I like where you're going with that. How, how, how does the Bible describe God's anger? And before we read the scripture, before we read the scripture, I want you to think through using the two laws we just talked about, two law concepts, and based on your knowledge of God's law, what is your prediction? What is your hypothesis? What is your conclusion? Without even reading any scripture to con- confirm it yet, just knowing God's law, what would you conclude his anger is? So let's, 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 let's do the two. If God's law is imposed, like that Roman law, what would his anger look like? If, if this is the law, what, what's his anger look like? Punishment. Punishment. Using power to hurt and, and destroy those who disagree with him. That's what it looks like. If God's law is natural, like the law of love, the protocols upon which life is built, then what does his anger look like? He just steps back and lets the cause be out. Anybody ever watch the old Western John Wayne and William Holden called the horse soldiers? Anyone remember that one besides me? Am I showing my real serious age here? <laughs> okay, well, this movie, this movie was, uh, was, a, uh, was a movie about the Civil War, and it was a, a Union troop that, was, uh, that took a raid deep into the Southern Confederacy, and, uh, and uh, John Wayne played the, the colonel heading the troop, and, and William Holden played a doctor, the, the division surgeon for this division that was going down into the, uh, into the South. And uh, partway through the movie, one of the scouts uh, gets, uh, gets an injury in his leg, uh, I think a bullet wound in his leg, and the surgeon takes out the bullet, and then he ties some moss around 
around the, around the wound and tells them to keep it there and keep it tied there and change it and put new moss on every day or every couple of days. And you understand why he's tying it on there, right? Because it has in some antibacterial, um, you know, properties to it. Anyway. Later in the movie, the, the, the doctor sees the scout limping, and he calls him over, and, and he looks, and, and, the, and the leg is gangrenous. And he says, what happened to the, the moss? Well, it was itching, so I took it off. And the doctor became angry. Angry! He got enraged. Why did you do this? And then the doctor had to amputate the leg. Do we get any insights as to why the doctor was angry? Did the doctor, did the doctors, what was the doctor angry about? Did he save the patient? Not disobedience, no. Yes, he's angry because the natural law now is out, is violent. Infection is taking over. Gangrenous, gangrenous properties are setting in. He's going to lose it. And in, the, and in the movie, actually, they did do the surgery, but it was so far gone, he also died. The guy died during the surgery. Oh, wow. Yeah, some of you saw the movie, yeah. And the doctor was so angry. He was so mad. And why was the doctor angry and mad? Because it was n- unnecessary. It didn't have to be this way. The guy could have been saved. He was angry. That, and in the, and in the, even in his anger, what was the doctor working to do? Notice that. Did the doctor ever turn his anger against the patient? No. He was never turned his anger against the patient, worked against the patient, tried to hurt the patient, so, inflicted punishment upon the patient. Not, none of that. In his anger, he worked to save the patient. But the, the patient, he yelled. So from the patient's perspective, he felt the anger. The expressions of emotion were there. Yes. You know, he, he may have even misjudged why the doctor was angry and thought he was just angry at him. And what was the law? What law was the doctor working under? Natural law. Natural law, laws of health. Yes, Lisa. I like that too. I like that too. So before we read the scripture now, knowing God's laws, the law of love, the design protocol by which life is built, what would you predict God's anger to be? An infliction of punishment or letting go to reap one's, the results of one's choices? Notice, see, see, I want you to be able to think on this level. Many, many times we're conditioned that we can't know truth until we get a text that says it. But once you know God's law and his character, you actually can predict things because they're in harmony with his law and character. And so let's read the scriptures now. This is out of Deuteronomy 32, verses 22, 23, and 29 and 30. My anger will flame up like fire and burn everything on earth. It will reach the world below and consume the roots of the mountains. I will bring on them endless disasters and use all my arrows against them. They fail to see why they were defeated. They cannot understand what happened. They, why were a thousand defeated by one and 10,000 by only two? The Lord, their God, has abandoned them. Their mighty God has given them up. What did God actually do? Hmm. Here's another one. Deuteronomy 31, 17. When that happens, I will become angry with them. I will abandon them and they will be destroyed. Many terrible disasters will come upon them and they... And then they will realize that these things are happening to them because I, their God, am no longer with them. Jeremiah 25, 5 and 6, 9 and 10. I will fight against you with all my might, my anger, my wrath, and my fury. I will kill everyone living on this, in this city. People and animals alike will die of terrible disease. 
Anyone who says in the city, anyone who stays in the city will be killed by war or starvation or disease, or it will be given over to the king of Babylonia, and he will burn it to the ground. I, the Lord, have spoken. Are we hearing what's happening here? Are you actually seeing, are you able to discern the difference between the words and the actual actions that happen? And what's causative here? Here's another one. Jeremiah 34, 17. Very well, then, I will give you freedom. The freedom to die by war, disease, and starvation. Yes? If you want to have an amazing experience, you can read all 52 chapters or 51 chapters of Jeremiah at one sitting. And this pattern is extremely clear. First, God bestows blessing. Then he removes blessing. Then he abandons our own choices. It's, it's very clear in the book of Jeremiah. Anyone who wants to just see that pattern. Here's it. It's not it, but it's, we've read Deuteronomy, Jeremiah. How about Ezekiel? Here's Ezekiel. You will feel my anger when I turn it loose on you like a blazing fire. I will hand you over to brutal men, experts in destruction. So what's actually happening? Or Ezekiel 25, 7. I will hand you over to other nations who will rob you and plunder you. Or 2 Chronicles 36, 17. The king called the young men of Judah, even in the temple. He had no mercy on anyone, young or old, man or woman, sick or healthy. God handed them all over to him. God handed them all over. Hosea 5, 14 and 15. I will attack the people of Israel and Judah like a lion. I myself will tear them to pieces and they will, and then leave them. When I drag them off, no one will be able to save them. I will abandon my people until they have suffered enough for their sins and come looking for me. Perhaps in their suffering, they will try to find me. Now, do you hear a little rationale behind why God is taking this action here? He's hoping they'll come to their senses. He's hoping. Why did the prodigal's father not go after him? Why did the prodigal leave? Why did the father of the prodigal son leave him out there? The prodigal's father was still rich. He could have had his agents follow that boy around. And when he ran out of money, he could put him up in a Motel 6 and had Pizza Hut delivered once a day. Okay? Why did he not do it? Because he loved him. Because he loved him enough and he knew the boy needed to suffer the consequences. And in his extremity, the boy goes, wow, it was better at home. I think I'll go home. He still didn't know his dad. He went home. It was better at home for him. He still went home for selfish reasons. But when he got there, he experienced got his dad's grace. I'll just be a servant here. I don't deserve any good thing from you. I've really, I've ruined everything. And dad put a coat on him and he put the ring on his finger and he gave him authority. And then the boy came to repentance. And the scripture says, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. When we find ourselves in the extremity of our stupid choices, God leads us to reap the consequence. And we often come back and say, oh, I'm so messed up. I, I don't even deserve. Just make me a servant. Make me a servant. And God says, no, you're my son. You're my daughter. And the kindness of God leads us. At that point, we're really converted. I trust you. Give you my heart. Yes. I, I thought it was interesting that under Sunday's lesson, the first, second, third, that fourth paragraph that you read, that uh, they show a confusion between punishment and discipline. Because it starts saying, the Lord will use the army to, of Babylon to punish the people. This announcement surprises the prophet. He did not anticipate that God would use such a ruthless army to discipline. Yeah. Many people actually do make that, dis- that, that error, don't they? Mm-hmm. Punishment, root word for punishment is punitive. 
means to exact vengeance. Root word for discipline is disciple, means to teach. They're not the same actions, not the same motives. Motive in one is to redeem and heal. Motive to the other is to, is to exercise one's spleen, so to speak, to, to get a little vengeance to make your own self feel better for making him hurt. Let's keep, let's keep going through our examples. Um, this is the last one. This is out of Romans 1, 18, and so forth. God's anger is revealed from heaven against all the sin and evil of the people whose evil ways prevent the truth of God from being known. God punishes them because what can be known about God is plain to them, for God has made it plain. They, saw, they say in their, they are wise, they are fools. Instead of worshiping the immortal God, they worship images made with, uh, to look like uh, mor- mortals or birds or animals or reptiles. So God, now what God does something, his anger is being revealed, and, and he punishes them. What does he do? So God has given those people over to the filthy things their heart desires. And they do shameful things with each other. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. They worship and serve what God has created instead of the creator himself, who is to be praised forever. Because they do this, God has given them over to shameful passions. Because those people refuse to keep in mind the true knowledge of God, he has given them over to corrupt mind so that they do not do the things they should do. Notice God's action three times. Paul says his anger is giving them up, letting them go to reap what they have chosen. This is absolutely the same thing a doctor does to a non-compliant patient. What does the doctor do to the non-compliant patient? He lets them go to reap what they've chosen. But the doctor never needs to seek action to hurt the patient, to inflict harm upon them. So the reason, the truth about God's character of love, the knowledge of his glory in our opening text, is not being more clearly seen is why? Why is the knowledge of the glory of the Lord not covering the earth like the water covered in a flood? Why? Because many people in church organization leadership hold an imposed law construct and misrepresent the government of God. Examine history. Just look at history. And you're going to see it. We need to pray for, for those in, in leadership. We need to love them. We need to work with them. We need to reach out and try and share truth with them so that they can come to see this other perspective. Yes? I, I, I have to confess, I hadn't read the lesson beforehand. But I, I, in Tuesday's lesson... No gold star for you, Ken. Okay. <laughs> I, I tell you what, I, I've come across the most troubling thing I've read in the, in the Sabbath school lesson <clears throat> in all the time I can remember. What's that? God's ultimate answer to Habakkuk's question was the affirmation of his abiding presence. That sounds great. Trust in God's presence and have confidence in his judgment in spite of the appearances to the contrary. We're getting getting in trouble here. That is the message of Habakkuk's book as well as the message of all biblical revelation. So, So what it's saying is trust it even though the evidence refute it. Is that what it's saying? Just about. This, this is like um, justification. In fact, we, we'll, we'll get in. We'll, we'll go. Do you want to comment on that further? Not really. Okay. <laughs> All right. Monday's lesson, Habakkuk 1, because we're going we're gonna to pick up on his theme here in just a minute. Habakkuk uh, 
Uh, it says in Habakkuk 1, 12 through 17, God answered, God's answer to Habakkuk's question poses even more vexing question. Can a righteous God use w- the wicked to punish those who are more righteous than they? Habakkuk's question in verse 17 has to do with divine justice. How do you think the way this question is being framed? What, what's the implication of the framing of this question? There's an assumption underlying this question. Yeah, and what's God actually doing? God's actually using the, the, the Babylonians. Does it not sound like in this question, the Babylonians are a tool being used by God to inflict punishment upon Israel? Doesn't it sound that way? This is all assumption. If a patient refuses antibiotics and they have a, a, a virulent infection, does the, doctor have to use, does the doctor use the pathogens to inflict punishment? Is the doctor using the if they refuse is the doctor using the passage to inflict punishment? No. no, not at all. But will the patient experience, if you want to use the word punishment, from the infection if they don't treat it properly? Yes. You see, see, see the difference here. Yes. I mean, if you follow that reason, it can take you into all kinds of very horrible. Speak up. Speak up. If you follow that reason. That can take you into all kinds of horrible places. I mean, God needs to have other people do his dirty work. God needs to have other people do his dirty work so he can look clean above everything. What kind of God is that? Can, can, it, can some of you, your, your, your computers are starting to roll. Can you start hearing some things you've been taught in the past that actually fit that paradigm? Absolutely. Way in the back on the computer there. Um, Eric has a question online. <clears throat> Don't the wicked sometimes need to be restrained in order... To not harm others. How does that fit into this model? Absolutely. The, the law of love actually will restrain. Uh, whether they're wicked, whether they're demented, whether they're psychotic, uh, we actually in love will restrain people from injuring themselves and injuring those about us. That doesn't mean we're seeking to hurt them or take vengeance upon them or inflict punishment upon them. But love will restrain those that are lost control of themselves to protect those that are innocent and even protect the one that's doing the harm. So that's a great point. Yes. It goes back to our discussion of what death is. Yes. And time out. Yes. You know, the flood, God put a lot of people in time out. But he will resurrect all of them right where they were. Exactly. Exactly. Their life did not end. Their life was suspended. Push the pause button. It was just pushed pause. That's all that happened there. Their life was put on pause. That's exactly right. Um, so the problem with so many that so many struggle with is operating under the false paradigm of imposed law, thus they see God inflicting what he allows to happen. This is the big difference. So think about, think about this. How did God use Babylon? If you, if you accept the premise of the lesson that they were his tool to inflict punishment, did God force the Babylonians to come and raid Judah? Did he prod, cajole, encourage, bribe, threaten, or in any other way use his power to make Babylon violent and abusive? Think what they're saying. If Babylon is the tool in God's hand that God is using, not just withdrawing and allowing consequence to happen but the choice, but if he's using this tool, they are suggesting God is behind the actions of Babylon. Think about the type of God they're representing here. It's totally false. God is not behind the actions of Babylon. Babylon is pagan. They've rejected the truth about God. They don't practice his methods. And what happens is when God removes a straining hand, you see what happens when you practice pagan God constructs, when you practice selfishness. They act out what happens. Yes. Eve. The Babylonians coming was actually had part, mostly Hezekiah's fault. Um, when he... Showed all their wealth, yes. Showed them everything that he had and boasted and was, was prideful and revealed his own character. Yep. And so, you know, 
it, it started to snowball from there. But God could still have protected them had they been faithful. Yes, even there, that wasn't that 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 pride, not good, but it wasn't irredeemable. Yeah, somebody else had a hand, Russell. Oh, excellent. Yes, the hand over here or hand right here. Uh, Like I heard someone say, Satan is self-employed. He doesn't need God. Satan is self-employed. She said. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. He doesn't need God to uh, tell him what to do. So he's, he's, self, he's self-determining, self-directed. Yes. yes. So are you saying that the Babylonians or the pathogens are kind of like the pathogens? Absolutely, yes. That's what I'm saying. Babylon, Babylon is out of harmony with God's design. Their methods are not godly. Their principles are not godly. Their motives are not godly. And they are, and they are operating out of harmony with the way God built life to operate. Rather than selfless love and beneficence to, to give to others, they're selfish and exploiting and taking and injuring others for their own gain. Yes, they're a pathogen. Yes. Which is also why the, the use of Babylon as a symbol, like in Revelation and places, is to demonstrate that which is completely opposite to God's. God's well said, absolutely. Third paragraph. Third paragraph. It says, uh, Habakkuk 2, 2-4 through 4 is one of the most important passages in the Bible. Verse 4 in particular expresses the essence of the gospel, the foundation of this verse that arguably started the Protestant Reformation. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we receive God's righteousness. We are credited with the righteousness of God himself. His righteousness becomes ours. Uh, it is known uh, as justification by faith. Yes, right here. Is it credit or creation? Well, we're going to talk about that right now. Let's talk about that right now. Um, first off, what does it mean? That the, and the passage that they're talking about is basically that the righteous, uh, the righteous shall live by faith in verse 4. That's the, the righteous shall live by faith. Or in the new, it can also be translated, the just shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith, the just shall live by faith. The lesson suggests that this means a legal belief in which we have faith in, that God credits to our heavenly records, accounts, a legal record of Jesus, and we are declared righteous even though we're not righteous. And I've had discussions with some theologians in this community about this very point, and they actually say that's what it, justification by faith means when God declares you righteous because you've accepted the legal penalty of uh, uh, payment from Jesus, and his record is placed on your record in heaven, and God sees the perfect life of Jesus, and you're declared righteous even though in character you're still not righteous. I said, so God's a liar. He declares something to be true that's not true. He declares me righteous when I'm not. Well, God doesn't lie, so when he declares it, it's not a lie. He can do that. That's what their answer was. Do you see a problem with this idea? It's, 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 it's the imposed law model. It's what it is, the imposed law model. It's all, it, it, and this is why they're stuck over here. You come over to the natural law model. Let's, let's look at some what real Bible the just shall live by faith is. Let's give some Bible examples. Three worthies on the plain of Dura. You know who I mean? The three, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Plain of Dura. The just, the righteous, shall live by faith. The, the, the righteous and the just are those who've already experienced a trust relationship with God in heart. They know him and they trust him. And thus, they, they choose in governance and self... In that trust relationship, they choose to do what's right or righteous in governance of self. And they trust God with how things turn out. That's what it means to live by faith. I trust him with the outcome. So on the plane of Dura, the three worthies had a choice. Bow or don't bow. That's their choice. 
They can't make a decision for Nebuchadnezzar to not throw them in or throw them in the fire. They can't make a decision for Jesus to deliver them or not deliver them. That's not in their power. Their choice is in governance itself. Bow, don't bow. The righteous, the just, those who do the right thing, live by faith in governance itself, trusting God with how things turn out. So they, they, and so they said to Nebuchadnezzar, hey, our God can deliver us from the fiery furnace, but even if he doesn't, we won't bow. That's powerful. They had no promise They had no guarantee. They knew he could, but they did not know he would. Okay? And they trusted him with the outcome. Hey, whatever best in your... Lord, if it's better for us to burn today in that fire, because it's going to do something grand for your kingdom, Lord, we trust you with how it turns out. We're going to do what's right in governance. Our life's in your hands. Use us in in your battle strategy the best way. We trust you with that. But that's not how we work. I'm going to tell you how the devil has got us thinking. And I'm right there with the rest of you, so I'm not pointing fingers. I mean, I I struggle with this my very own self. But here's how we work. can't bow. That is sin. I can't worship a false god. That's that's just a piece of metal. I can't do that. But I can't go in the fiery furnace either. That is is just a non-starter. Fiery furnace, out. (laughs) Oh, man, what am I going to do? Ah, I know. Music plays, I'll tie my shoe. I'm not bowing. I'm tying my shoe. Lord, Lord knows I'm not bowing. He knows my heart, doesn't he? Lord looks on the heart. He knows I'm not bowing. I can't help it that Nebuchadnezzar and everybody thinks I'm bowing. It's not my fault what they think. I can't control their thoughts. <laughs> Isn't this exactly how we, we work? And, and, and if they would have done that that day, would they have been witnesses for God? Would, would their story have been told for millennia now? There were hundreds of Jews in that crowd. That's right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Okay. Wendell, go ahead. The worthies are a rare example of what happens when God uses as a witness. When we trust him, right? But there were millennia in which his followers died by the sword. But, 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 but. In their trust in him, did he get effect from that that was good for his kingdom? What was it that overthrew the Roman Empire? Was it the fact that he delivered with power and might? Or was it the fact that they had peace and they were singing praise and they weren't afraid of dying in the arena and the Romans who were terrified of death looked at them and goes, what's wrong with these people? They should be screaming, but they're, they're, they're singing praise songs. And that then caused those people in the stands to go out and say, hey, let's find a Christian and see what they know we don't know. And, and the hearts were being converted. But as you mentioned, we are often too worried about the outcome. Exactly. We worry outcomes. My patients, they worry outcomes. Worry outcomes. Okay, one more. We're never going to get through this. Go ahead. Well, that's because we make decisions based on what we believe the future will be. We lie because we think we know what the future is, but we don't know the future. We don't. We don't. All right. So another example, just to live by, I mean, uh, this justification by faith is declared versus, and the example that the theologians will use, they'll use Romans and the example of Abraham, where Abraham was accounted or credited or so forth and so on. You say, this is what they use. And they'll say, ah, see, it's a credit. It's an accounting. The actual Greek there actually means if you, if you account that you have $5 in your bank account, it's because you actually have $5 in your bank account. <laughs> That's why you can account it. That's what it means. You can't account $5 in your bank account if it's empty. You can't do it. You can't account righteousness of Abraham if Abraham is not righteous. So this idea of declared righteousness when he's not is a lie. So what does it actually mean? What is the natural state of the human heart toward God before conversion? According to Romans. Enmity. Our natural state is distrusting of God. We don't trust him. 
Abraham trusted God and he was recognized as righteous, which means by definition, his natural heart had changed from distrust to trust. And that is what was recognized as righteous. His heart changed first. The recognition came second. This is profound. It's real. It's actual. It's not some declared thing in books far off in a cosmos somewhere else. It's happening in the believer. Yes, in the back. We can trust God more if we love every day because it's easy to be Adventist of the seven days, but if we become Adventist of the seven days, it's power. I like it. You know, that's what happened Enoch, Abraham, because he was loving God every day. Yes, he's saying basically being a Christian seven days rather than on the seventh day. And not one master only. Pardon? Love one master only, yes. Yes. All right, Tuesday's lesson. Tuesday's lesson, first paragraph in Tuesday's lesson, says God, God, God's answer to Habakkuk's question in Habakkuk 117 is recorded in chapter 2, con, uh, continues in the form of a song that mocks the proud oppressor. No less than five woes affirm the message that Babylon's doom is sealed. The punishment on the enemy will be in accordance with measure-for-measure principle. What does it mean? We need to understand this. What does it mean? Measure, and I want you to think back now. Two law models. Two law models. If you accept the imposed law model, then what does punishment measure for measure mean? An eye for an eye. Punishment fits the crime. Not only punishment fits the crime eye for an eye, but where is the source of the punishment arising? It's an external infliction by an authority. The Saudi Arabia recently convicted somebody and sentenced them to paralysis because they, their actions caused another person to be paralyzed. This is the imposed law model. We will measure for measure inflict upon you the punishment that's equal to the harm you've caused others. This is the, the, the imposed law model. What's the natural law model say? You reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. Particularly, where do you reap it? In your own own mind and character. So if you murder someone, you are changing your character and you are a murderer in heart and character. If you steal, you are a thief in heart. If you lie, you are a liar. Thus the evil you do to another actually sears itself into your being. You become that which you do to another. And that's why it's measure for measure. You can never escape this other than in Jesus Christ and experience a new heart, a regeneration, a recreation. And those who don't, this is what Paul means when he says in Romans, they pile up wrath for the day of wrath. Because the more they do, they sear themselves more and more and more into this ugliness and one day they will face all truth and love and and their unremedied heart condition will cause untold agony and suffering. Fourth paragraph. I'm going to try to get through a couple more points here. Uh, God's uh, ultimate answer to Habakkuk's question was the affirmation of his abiding presence. Trust in God's presence and uh, have confidence in his judgment in spite of the appearance to the contrary. I think this is what was uh, read earlier. That is the message of Habakkuk's book as well as the rest of the Revelation. What enables you to trust God? Seeing the way he's led in the past. The way he's led in the past, evidence of his trustworthiness. 
Does understanding God's natural law of love, the protocols upon which he built life, and seeing it operate in action and in lives in scripture, the three threads of evidence that we've talked about, does that enhance your trust and confidence in God? Absolutely. More than just, well, the Bible says it. I believe it, that settles it. The last sentence of that paragraph is one of the few good things in it. Prophetic faith is trust in the Lord and his unchanging character. Yes, thank you. Um, So, though, can people have false faith? Can people have faith that David Koresh was Jesus and die in faith in the burning flames at Waco? See, you can have faith. And, and faith that actually emotionally brings you a sense of peace. Faith that can, can, can give you such confidence. You can strap bombs on yourself and get on airplanes and fly them into buildings. You can have faith and still be completely wrong and lost. Faith is not enough. It's what do you have faith in is the question. How do you determine whether your faith is an intelligent faith? I don't know why I said we must have an intelligent faith, not a blind faith, a blind in, incredulity. This is, what, this is what much of Christianity teaches, a blind, unintelligent faith. This is what, where people can believe this, this distorted view of God and have this false peace. We must have an intelligent faith, and this is why we've introduced in here the, the integrated um, evidence-based approach, the three threads of evidence. Scripture is given for reproof and doctrine. Nature, God's divine, char- God's, uh, divine nature is seen in what he has made so the men are without excuse, and experience, taste and see that the Lord is good. Harmonizing all three threads on each point. But when you separate uh, science from the other two threads, you end up in evolutionism. God, godless evolutionism. When you separate experience from the other two threads, you end up in mysticism. When you separate scripture, sola scriptura, you end up in, with, according to the Christian encyclopedias, 34,000 different Christian groups claiming the Bible. When Martin Luther used the term sola scriptura, he used it specifically against traditions that had no basis in Scripture. I can't believe a tradition just because we've been doing it for a long time when there's no Scripture. We must have Scripture to support what we're doing. Sola Scriptura, we're going by the Scripture, okay? But what's happened is the devil has taken this very profound and insightful truth that, that Martin Luther used to, to, uh, to stop the, 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 the distorted influx of false tradition. He's taken it now to, for, for well-meaning people to use to exclude two threads of God's evidence. We can't use science, we can't use experience, Scripture only. And thus, people are handicapped in their ability to come to know God, and they end up with all these distorted views about God. And I'm going to tell you, the people that I've dealt with that hold this imposed law view, one of their deepest passions that they must cling to is only the Scripture. We can't use science, we can't use experience. And that's why there's 34,000 different groups. Gracious Heavenly Father, We thank you so much that you are God of love and truth and you have provided evidences abundant in scripture, in nature and science, and in experience that we can taste and see. We can test and see that the Lord is good. We don't have to remain in ignorance and blind faith. You want an intelligent faith. You told us, come and reason, though your sins are like scarlet. They'll be made white like snow. Lord, we want our lives transformed to be in harmony with you. We want that unity of mind and character and purpose and method. We want to come back to that true trust relationship that we trust you with how things turn out. And in that trust, we're able to make daily decisions based on love, not based on fear, fear of the future and fear of the unknown. 
We pray that you will be with this class, be with the members here, empower them to know your kingdom, your methods, your principles, enable them to, to communicate this truth effectively, to break down the barriers that so many are, are held, that so many minds are held in confusion and darkness about you in that old imposed law construct. We pray for the, the materials that the classes produce, that they may go forward and touch many lives, that the world will be lighted with the knowledge of your glory, and you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Mm-hmm.